Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. Welcome to the first episode, Price and Value. How do the dots connect? The following is a reading from my October 2017 investor letter, which can be found in the investor relations section of the Starvine Capital website www.starvinecapital.com Price and Value How do the dots connect? Last summer, I was chatting about stocks with a friend. This individual happens to be a full-time investor, and so it hit me when he asked the following questions. What connects price and value? Wouldn't it be interesting if someone could empirically show a connection between the two? Why should price ever travel to value? Those questions really struck me. They are basic and yet not so easy to answer. How many of us who look for value all day have recently given those questions serious reflection? I, for one, have not given them much direct thought for many years. As an exercise, let us walk through the ABCs of value in plain English. What is value investing? There is the old saying that value investors aim to buy a dollar for 50 cents. If an investor had unlimited opportunities to buy a dollar for less than its face value, and furthermore had perfect certainty of being able to sell a dollar for one dollar, his wealth would grow exponentially without taking risk. But let's first acknowledge the definitions of price and value as per the Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Price, the amount of money given or set as consideration for the sale of a specified thing. Value a numerical quantity that is assigned or is determined by calculation or measurement. So price is simply what one pays or an amount that has been agreed upon, while value is a number assigned that requires calculation or measurement. In other words, price could be anything, while value requires reasoning and facts. Value investing is, in my words, the conscious practice of buying investments below their estimated value as can be determined by facts and a rational process. It makes inherent sense to buy a company at a steep discount to its fair value. By doing so, an investor creates a form of downside protection while positioning for benefit to the upside. Ultimately, if we properly appreciate and value a business based on its ability to generate cash flow over the long term and further buy at a price significantly below our estimate, we should stand to do reasonably well. Here's a basic example. Let's assign a value on apples. If we were to place a bushel of red delicious apples on a scale and the reading stated 40 pounds, there isn't much to dispute except the accuracy of the scale. So 40 pounds is our fact. Next, if we looked at the price this variety sold for historically, we may come up with a number approximating $2 per pound. In this case, then, we estimate the bushel of apples is worth $80, or 40 pounds times $2 per pound. 
We now see a bushel on sale for $20, far below our estimate of value. The farmer tells us he is selling his crop at a big loss to raise emergency funds. He likes to trade stocks, and it turns out he has sustained large losses in his margin account. Consequently, the brokerage requires him to inject more money to cover the margin call. In other words, the farmer is a forced seller of the apples and is therefore selling at a price unrelated to the cost of producing them or what they reasonably should sell for based on demand. After conducting a brief investigation, we buy the bushel for $20 on the last day of the sale. We ask common acquaintances of the farmer about his character and inspect the bushel ourselves to ensure worms aren't crawling in and out of the apples. If we have truly bought the bushel at a 75% discount to its market value, we are in a position of limited downside. That is, if we missed something in our due diligence and the apple somehow turned out to be defective, our downside is $20. However, if everything is as appears, we can potentially sell the bushel for $60, which is still a 25% discount to fair value, and triple our money overnight. Alternatively, we can just enjoy consuming the apples with the satisfaction that each dollar travels far with the purchase. Price travels to value. Is this comparable to buoyancy? And now the critical question. If price is suppressed far below fair value, why should price ever be pulled towards value? An analogy to value investing would be a ball underwater that rises back to the surface. This is Archimedes' principle, or the physical law of buoyancy at work. If the ball is pushed lower, its upside from that depressed point becomes even greater. With value investing, the water surface represents the fair value of an investment. Thus, if other investors drive a stock price too low versus where it deserves to trade based on the company's earnings power, an opportunity to make a good profit has been created as long as the valuation is ultimately correct. Instead of gravity, which is the force behind buoyancy, we have the force of capitalism in value investing. Investment dollars should continually migrate to opportunities offering the best perceived trade-offs between risk and return. Investor psychology can literally drive prices anywhere, far below and above value in the near term, or maybe even for an extended period far exceeding the average investor's capacity to wait. Therefore, unlike buoyancy, where the time required for the ball to rise to surface is calculable within a reasonable margin of error, we cannot reliably know how much time is required for the price-value gap to close. And since value itself is a calculation that involves not only facts but also judgment, the low-high range for valuing any given company can be extremely wide. Why is value investing compelling, if so unreliable? If anything, we have established that value investing does not favor precision. The value of a company cannot be calculated with pinpoint accuracy. Moreover, a stock's price can stay meaningfully below value forever because of investor psychology, so why is value investing a compelling philosophy if it is so imperfect in practice? The value style resonates with a select crowd because it focuses on the knowable to determine the worth of stocks or just about any type of asset. Each share represents real though fractional ownership in a company. Naturally, the value of each share is directly linked to the earnings of a company over time. 
If earnings per share doubles within six years, it's likely that the stock price will follow to at least some degree. What else can make more sense? Value investors prize independent thinking and arrive at conclusions based on logic, not emotion or instincts. Yes, like Spock. By having a long time horizon, we can take advantage of randomness and emotions that cause prices to detach far from value. But perhaps just as important as the notion that price should converge with value is the defensive positioning created by locking in a price below value. The upside to downside implied in the range of outcomes becomes what we call asymmetric, meaning the range of outcomes is skewed towards success more than failure. All else being equal, a lower price increases our return and decreases our downside risk. In this next segment, we will do Q&A with my life partner and editor, Kimberly Barrett. Kimberly always has great questions when editing my blogs, newsletters, and investment commentary. Despite my efforts to make my writings accessible to the layperson, someone who isn't familiar with investment terminology can understandably get lost. So let's get started. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, I have a few questions. Starting off, what do you mean by price traveling to value? When you buy a stock, you have to pay a price. So price is simply whatever is offered that day or minute on the stock exchange. Whereas value is different. It's not just what price you pay it. Value is something you calculate, and something you calculate based on facts. So when I, yeah, sorry. When I say price traveling the value, when you when you make an investment, you pay a price, and that price you you're willing to pay because. You've calculated a value that is more deserving of what it should be. So all it means is the process of price uh, traveling to value where you realize a profit. Okay, but that price can still be subjective. Or sorry, the value is subjective. The price is yeah, not. Yeah, that's a very good point. So as I said in the write-up, the value that you calculate, it's, not, it's imprecise. It's based on uh, assumptions. You can have... Say as your fact, what you think the free cash flow is based on what's disclosed in the financials. But that's already historic. The value of, of any asset or investment is the discounted cash flows. And how do you get that? You have to estimate what they are in the future and a discount rate to bring them back. Well, you've already got two things that if you're wrong, they can compound against each other. So this whole thing is, this whole exercise is necessarily imprecise and extremely sensitive to you know assumptions. So then, of course, the question is, why uh, why even do it? Well, I, we have what we call a margin of safety. So when we pay a price lower, what Ben Graham, what, what he said is, you need a big margin of safety. I think he said thirty four percent or something. Uh, as a and and the reason why is to have a margin for error in case you're wrong about how fast you think, for example, a company will grow, or in his case, if he was looking at book value, margin for error for what the assets, underlying assets, booking up that, making up that book value are are worth. There, there can be many things that go wrong. Okay, all right. I have another question then. Can you elaborate with examples of reasons why a stock would become cheap or discounted? Okay, there are so many reasons why sales can happen on the stock market. Keep in mind, all it is, it's an auction. That runs from 9.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. on weekdays. You're sitting in front of a screen 
a company price or value is being shown in front of you and you don't really know who's on the other side. You might have an idea of who's on the other side or what type of seller is on the other side, but ultimately it's, it's anonymous. So we can think we know, uh, but it could be just a combination of reasons. So some could be that the company has a temporary perceived problem. It could be, for instance, there is a scandal in the company, like we saw with Valiant Pharmaceuticals and starting in 2015 when the stock crashed really hard based on things that were going on in the company. They bought too many companies, they used that, and then there was a scandal that broke out. There was some rogue employees. They set up some pharmacy within the company, and, and it was a big blow up. Price crashed. That's more than a temporary problem. That became more like a five-year problem so far where the company is still trying to turn itself around. But other temporary problems are events like JD.com. That's a, a Chinese e-commerce player where there was an allegation of assault against the founder back in late 2018. Stock crashed really hard. But all the while, the company was growing in the background. The, sale, the sales were totally unaffected and grow, compounding at this 20% rate. Wait, why do stocks go on sale? There, well, there's good reasons. It could be that the company's doing poorly, uh, but then they wouldn't be really on sale. Maybe it's, it's deserving of that low price. It could be a bad quarter. The thing is, most companies' results, they don't work like clockwork. They have good quarters, but there's just natural fluctuations like we do have weather. There's a certain randomness to quarterly results. Some quarters naturally are not as good, or they might fall far short of analyst uh, or brokerage expectations that are published. Mm. They might actually be good results, but just less than what people have come to expect. And when the results come out, the stock goes down. There are motivated sales. So it could be that professional investors no longer want the stock, or it could be that professional investors like the stock, but they see another idea that they believe is better, thereby creating selling pressure when they sell out. You've been reading a lot about these quant funds that now dominate 80% of trading. If that's true, then that's 80% trading that where people are not calculating intrinsic value. It's some other factor. You know, there's so many reasons why a stock could temporarily become dislodged from its uh, range of intrinsic value or what, what you would think it is. It could just be panic like we saw in Q4 2018 and also the coronavirus uh, lockdown in March of 2020. I did a write-up in after Q4 2018 where I just drew this an indication of where the index is going and spiraling out of control. And the point I was trying to make was that different factors can compound against each other. It could be panic, initial panic driving the stock price down, which then triggers margin calls that gaps the price down and there and then from there retail investors sell when they see their statements and then that triggers more quant fund selling it could be any number of things and as an investor behind your screen it's impossible to know exactly what is causing what from day to day or really even month to month and when you open the wall street journal globe and mail it doesn't matter what news source, they'll always see the price move and then they'll try to explain it. But the truth is, is that no one can explain it totally scientifically. Okay. I'm pretty understanding that a lot better now. I have a third question. 
What are the knowables that value investing are based on? So the whole idea here is to try to be objective. And if we're going to make decisions objectively, they've got to be based on facts and sound reasoning. So by knowables, what I mean is things that can be known. I talked earlier about free cash flow. When a company publishes its financials, they will come up with a lot of numbers. And as long as you trust those numbers, that might be as close to knowables as you can get. It could be industry facts, market share, the company's business model uh, itself. Knowables are things also like track record. So because these are public companies, they have to publish financials. There is a track record of success, what decisions the company CEO or management made and the result afterwards. So if it's a company that likes to acquire other companies uh, and they've been doing it for years under the same management, then you have public information. How much did they pay for those companies? How well do those acquisitions uh, work out? Or whether it's that or just how a company spends its money. So one of the biggest drivers of success over the long term is the levers that the company pulls in terms of how it optimizes spending the company's cash flow to drive the best per share growth. And so there are times, for example, when it might be best to do acquisitions because prices are low, or there could be a time when the company's own stock is cheap, uh, at least relative to the acquisition front. So it's about the company being able to optimize the spending in the way that drives the best long-term value. Now, this is kind of a hindsight exercise. You know, that's a problem, but to the extent where you think that a company's track record is indicative of good, savvy management that you think is predictive of the future, I consider that a very important note. Our last question. What do you mean when you say the upside to downside is becoming asymmetrical? But just picture a spring. If you hold in your hand a spring that's coiled, if you think of the ability to coil it more, that's the downside. So what can happen from that point? Well, it has mostly upside in mm. uncoiling. So in value investing, by well, one of the things is by paying a price that is far below what it is reasonably worth based on facts and maybe conservative assumptions. By paying a price that is far below what it's worth, one way to look at it is that you are locking in an outcome. You're locking in an outcome where your downside is low because you feel it's protected um, either by the current earnings of the company that you think are going to grow or it could be the asset, hard asset value of a company. So one example I would say And again, this is hindsight, is Tricera Group. It's a niche insurance company. It's spun off of Brookfield Asset Management. So this is one where it wasn't really a contrarian pick. It was, I think it was just overlooked because it was spun off and the way it was spun off, they still don't do conference calls. So they don't attract a lot of attention to themselves. It's a small cap stock as well with, uh, and it's closely held. But the way I figured this back in, 2018. So I've been working on it for about a year at that point before I actually purchased it. The way that company was priced, I figured at the time, was they had, or they still have a quickly growing Canadian operation. And if you had just come up with a reasonable price for the Canadian operation and added on just basically the cash investment they put into the US, which at the time 
was nascent, just starting out, then I look at that as asymmetric because at the time what you had was you pay your moderate lender paying for what the company had and that cash investment into the U.S., which has since gone gangbusters, really, you were getting kind of really a free option on the growth of that U.S. division. And it turned out very, very, very well. And if you look at the price now and do a backwards calculation, you would say most of the current price is really now the U.S. division. So that was asymmetric, I'd say, because it was priced in such a way that you were paying, again, for a high-quality moderate or really fast growing Canadian division, double digits, and you weren't paying much of anything for the option of the US division growing. So that's one way of being asymmetric. So that in that sense it wasn't cheap in a conventional sense, but still asymmetric. Nice. Well you answered my questions. So just for everyone else, if you enjoyed Stephen's thoughts and you know someone who'd be interested, please share it, subscribe, and like our initial podcast. Thank you.